if you alienate your partners, your your channel motion is going to be uh, undermined and, and won't work. So in order to do that, like one of the things you have to do is be really tight about deal registration, right? Because you're going to have partners that are selling into the, the same verticals, the same segments, the same territories. And so if you have a very tight deal registration process and set of rules that everyone is aware of, both internally and from a partner perspective, you can avoid those, those conflicts by just pointing to the rules. This is Sales Ops Demystified, the number one most downloaded podcast in sales operations. We invite the brightest minds in sales ops onto the show to deconstruct the what, why, and how behind rep productivity, forecasting, metrics, and all things revenue. This podcast is brought to you by EBSA, a revenue intelligence platform used to identify risk in the pipeline and score customer engagement, and is sponsored by the Global Sales Operations Association and the UK Revenue Operations Network. Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Sales Ops Demystified podcast. Today, we're joined by Gabe Rothman, who is the Senior Director of Revenue Operations at Rescale. Gabe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Good to, good to be here. And let's kick things off by understanding your, your roots into sales slash RevOps, because I understand you were potentially a more generalist operations person, and then you managed to find your way into the revenue function. So A, is that correct? And B, how did that happen? Sort of. I actually, so if you go, if you go far enough back in my career, I actually started before I even worked in operations, I was an attorney, um, which uh, didn't work for me. It wouldn't, wasn't the right job for me. So when I, when I made the, the career switch uh, into ops, um, yes, initially it was pretty general because I started in uh, consulting this is kind of how I was able to, to transition over. So um, I worked for a company called Blue Wolf, which is now owned by IBM. Um, uh, they were, and I guess still are, um, a pretty major uh, partner in the Salesforce ecosystem. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, you know, I was doing a lot of learning. And then as I kind of got my feet wet in that world, um, had to be pretty general, right? We had a number of customers across a bunch of different uh, verticals and segments and and. Uh, as a result, they they had um, fairly substantially different sales processes, and yeah, we had to be fairly uh, generally knowledgeable about a host of different things in um, sales, marketing, customer success. But as I kind of learned um, about uh, the technical aspects of Salesforce and and broader like go to market technologies uh, in that role. Um, sort of discovered that I had kind of a knack for um, uh, technical solutions and systems architecture and whatnot. Um, and so my first job at PagerDuty actually narrowed my focus significantly. Um, I was recruited to join um, at a client at the time called OpenDNS, 
and uh, OpenDNS is now owned by Cisco Meraki. Um, their director of sales ops, who was my point of contact, left and went to PagerDuty and recruited me to join him there. So I was very focused at PagerDuty on the systems component. And, and then obviously, you know, at the time that I joined, it was like 90 people. So a company that size, you have to do more than just your narrow focus. But my primary focus was, was there. And then it started to broaden again. You know, I moved on to Lookout, um, where still primarily focused on systems, but broadened uh, a bit more and, you know, in a director role. And Lookout was interesting because we were sort of a kind of a, I would characterize it as like a series A startup inside of a series D startup, not to go down too, too far down the rabbit hole. But essentially when I joined Lookout, Lookout's primary business was B2B, or it was a, sorry, B2C and B2B2C. Um, so they initially were a freemium product, right? Download it on your phone. And if you liked the, the premium security features, you could pay for it. And then the B2B2C um, element that later evolved was um, uh, partnerships with carriers, right? So you'd come bundled. When I joined, it was to help them build out a B2B business, which is for companies that wanted to do like mobile device, um, like bring your own mobile device programs or even corporate mobile device programs, but they wanted to have it all rolled under a single management umbrella, right? So we'd integrate with mobile device management platforms. And so we basically built a direct sales model and a two-tier channel distribution model from the ground up within, within there. So, you know, more sort of like broadening and then Mesosphere and on to rescale that continue to broaden as I started to run um, my own teams and, and yeah. Uh, kind of brings us up to date. Got it. If actually mentioning Mesosphere, I'd like to talk, go into a little bit more detail about one thing you did there. So we're talking about um, increasing SQLs by 30%, despite having a stricter MQL criteria. And, and you did that by rebuilding the whole funnel process. So could you just explain like what you changed there and what the impact was? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't all that magical. Um, when I joined Mesosphere, the, the marketing team had a particular um, philosophy about um, qualification um, and qualification criteria uh, that I didn't agree with. Um, and we didn't have like a formal marketing ops person in, in, you know, in seat at the time. So having kind of a, a knowledge base around marketing ops, I kind of pressed the issue um, and was eventually able to, to, get, to get them to change it. When I, when I joined, um, we were not doing any traditional lead scoring. Our marketing leader had a point of view that traditional lead scoring was, um, I don't know, for lack of a better way of putting it, I guess sort of nonsense, right? You're just sort of guessing and applying arbitrary numbers to different types of activities, which is true in a sense when you first build your scoring model, right? But that's why we iterate, right? You build a scoring model, and then you look at the data and then you adjust, right? So what, what they were doing was they had built out a, um, an integration with a company called Mintigo. Um, and so our entire scoring model was a predictive model, right? So it, it, there was no behavioral component. So it was all, all demographic and firmographic. Um, and not only demographic and firmographic, but based on whatever special secret sauce Mintigo was using. And so there were a couple of things like sort of outcomes from that. One is that um, leads can never re-MQL, right? If they are, if they MQL, 
and they're qualified out and recycled, right? We had a recycled stage, but they could never re-MQL from recycled because nothing changes about the firmographic or demographic aspects of the lead, right? The only way something can re-MQL is if there's some behavioral, some intent. So um, that was one problem. The other problem is that the, um, the criteria became too all-encompassing. It was too blunt an instrument. So we were actually sending too much over the fence, right? Which resulted in a lot of wasted effort, right? The, the, the SDR team was trying to qualify things that frankly weren't ready to be qualified. You know, someone may have never interacted with us at all in any way other than to like maybe reply to an email or, or you know, maybe they filled out a form one time to download some asset they were interested in, right? But they didn't really exhibit any intent. And so by moving us to a more uh, traditional behavioral model and coupling that with the um, the predictive model that uh, Mintigo supplied to us, we were able to actually reduce the number of MQLs that were being thrown over the fence um, to a more sort of like best practice range. I think we were somewhere in the vicinity of like 40%-ish of leads were um, MQLing at some point versus it was like, I don't know, way over 50%, 60, 70%, something like that. So we were able to reduce that population, but to a much more manageable um, um, intent-driven grouping, which increased the efficiency of the SDR team. Makes total sense. The, and then quickly, before we move over to Alex, just to understand the scope of the role at the moment at Rescale. So how many reps are you responsible for? What's the size of the RevOps team? Um, yeah, so um, in terms of just salespeople, um, we've actually been growing pretty rapidly there. So I, I forget the exact number that we're at right now. It's somewhere in the 30 to 35 reps globally. Um, so we sell in EMEA, uh, America's obviously EMEA, and then within APAC, um, Japan, Korea, and China. If you expand that to include our, we have uh, a sales development team, which has two components, a business development team and an account development team. Account development, meaning more like strategic aligned with enterprise sellers. Uh, it moves to around like 45 people. And then if you include um, solutions and customer success, which we also support, um, it grows to somewhere in, in the like 60-ish, 65 people range. Um, and my team is, um, I would say, five and a half people <laughs> right now. Uh, marketing ops um, uh, was on my team, and we made the, an organizational decision to move it into marketing. So marketing ops actually dotted lines to my team right now. Um, the rest of my team um, is composed of a, a, a go-to-market systems director, um, a deal desk slash like sales operations generalist, um, a business operations director who is in charge of like uh, a variety of special projects, pricing and packaging. He owns our um, our marketing pipeline model. Um, one of those folks that you can just kind of like point him at a problem and just say like, go figure that out. Um, and then we have a kind of a more junior sales operations analyst who kind of supports everyone across the team in a host of uh, different ways. Amazing. Yeah. Those are the best types of team members, the ones where you can point at a problem and be like, solve it. Alex, he's a sharp dude. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, we, we must shout out. Um, <laughs> Alex, over to you. Thanks, Tom. And 
Um, thanks for that, Gail. It was really interesting. There's two areas that I just wanted to pick out from, from what um, you were saying that I thought were interesting. I'd love to dive into some more detail on. Um, the first was when you talked about building out this two-tier kind of selling model with both direct and channel partners. Um, and I know to a lot of people that trying to up, you know, scale their partner selling or their channel selling is, is, a, is an issue um, currently. And I just wondered if you had any advice that you could give us around how you did that and sort of techniques to apply, et cetera. Yeah, so in terms of building out that model, I mean, one thing was, uh, and I will give uh, Lookout a lot of credit for this, that, that frankly had nothing to do with me. They invested appropriately um, in um, the right resources to build that out. So when I joined, um, we weren't really doing it in a vacuum. Right? We had brought over um, a global um, channel sales vice president, and we actually hired um, channel account managers in region um, across all of our uh, global sales sites. Um, so in that respect, the infrastructure was there immediately. Um, I mean, just in terms of like general best practices, one thing you always have to be super careful of, especially if you're going to do um, uh, parallel direct and channel sales is ensuring that you set up a sales process that avoids channel conflict, right? You alienate your partners, your, your channel motion is going to be uh, undermined and, and won't work. So in order to do that, like one of the things you have to do is be really tight about deal registration, right? Because you're going to have partners that are selling into the, the, same, uh, the same verticals, the same segments, the same territories. And so if you have a very tight um, deal registration um, process and set of rules that everyone is aware of, both internally and from a partner perspective, you can avoid, um, you can avoid those, those conflicts by just pointing to the rules, right? Um, and, and hopefully, if you do it right, you don't have to sort of arbitrate conflict uh, very often because um, those registrations will come through and um, you'll have a tight feedback loop between the channel account manager and your direct sellers who will, you know, the, the channel account manager will make sure that, that those um, deal registrations are validated before they're accepted. And um, ostensibly, once that's done, you should be able to, um, to go ahead and, and sell in a parallel manner without having that conflict. So that's certainly one thing that, that I would make sure uh, to have. The, the other thing that I think is really important is to have a very well-developed, easy-to-use uh, partner community. The, I mean, and this is something that I believe in actually just generally in RevOps. Everything that can be uh, automated should be automated. Um, you know, with sellers, you want to eliminate um, administrative load as much as possible. Um, and you really want to focus because you only have a limited amount of like administrative asks that you can, that you can really ask your sellers to do. If, once you hit, you know, uh, a sort of threshold tipping point, they're just going to stop doing it. So, and the same goes for channel partners, right? And it's even, it's even more important with channel partners because they have their own CRM, um, most likely that they're working in. And so if you're asking them to do double duty, you need to uh, create a system that allows them to very easily, um, you know, enter and manage their, uh, their business with you. Right, thanks. That's, that's very helpful. And yeah, and could be quite a competitive edge as well. If you've, if you've made your, your partner system so much better than any of your competitors, then they're much more likely to want to sell yours because it's, it's just easier. So yeah, no, thank you. The other thing just was touching on, you, you were talking about scoring models um, and iterating through them. And I just thought that's um, yeah, just really, really fascinating 
um, area to explore further. Um, and and if I got, got got this right, so you you'd had a just purely kind of essentially ICP model um, at the business, looking at just technographing affirmative data, and then pretty much just saying, do they fit? Yep, chuck them over. No kind of um, pre qualification. Um, what what would you then? suggest you also look for on the behavioral side so what would your kind of key pieces be and how would you go about doing that yeah i mean i, I think that like there's sort of like baseline best practice type stuff um that everyone should do i mean you, you obviously need to have some type of scoring around like email engagement um there's the you know the standard categories of um of marketing outreach that you're doing you need to have you know some sort of content scoring, right? For downloads, maybe you have high value, low value um, assets, um, content syndication programs. If you're doing that, not everyone does content syndication, but if you're doing content syndication programs, um, scoring around that, you know, webinars, um, corporate events, field events, right? So all of these different types of interactions have to have um, an associated value, right? And so initially, you're kind of, again, you're just kind of painting with a broad brush, right? Like the absolute, like the scores themselves, like the actual numbers, they don't really matter. Um, and what I mean by that is like in a vacuum, whatever the, whatever the score for any individual thing is, um, doesn't matter. They only matter in relationship to one another, right? So you can score it on whatever scale you want. I mean, one to a hundred is something that everyone can like sort of grok, right? So um, that's generally a good place to, to, to kind of like start. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you sort of sit down and uh, the way we, we approached it was to sit down and look at like, hey, what, is our, what do we think our most valuable stuff is? And then kind of work back, right? Um, and, and you can even sort of take the approach of working in from both sides, right? Like think about like, okay, well, what is like our sort of atomic unit of value from a behavioral perspective. It's probably an email open, right? That's probably the, 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 the simplest, um, you know, lowest value interaction that you can get, right? So maybe you start with like, okay, that's, that's a point. And then on the other end, you know, what is your highest value action? I don't know, maybe if you have like a corporate event that you, that you run, um, you know, uh, well, to use an extreme example, like Dreamforce, right? Attending, like paying for and attending Dreamforce is, is a, especially if they're not a customer, is a pretty high value uh, thing for someone to do, right? So you sort of start in the end and kind of work your way in and try to like develop a, a scoring model that is relative to those things. And then over time, you can start to run metrics that are correlative to, uh, to close, right? You look at like, well, our best deals, right? Our, our highest value deals, or our highest velocity deals. Um, what are the things that happened on those? And start to try to make, you know, guesses, educated guesses, but guesses about was that correlation meaningful, right? So, oh, uh, well, it, it, you know, like, for example, we may, maybe we have um, field event um, attendance as higher value than like some of our highest value download assets. Well, maybe it turns out that actually the correlation is reversed. So maybe we adjust those things. Um, and so it becomes like a process over time of trying to dial in that scoring model to, to correspond to, to those, uh, those business KPIs. Great, thanks. So 
Yeah, I was just, I'm, I'm quite interested because I've been building out with, with actually a couple of different customers of ours, some sort of account-based um, selling strategies around sort of target accounts. And and we're sort of proposing a fairly broad ICP to dictate the target accounts and then to two a two-piece strategy within that. One is essentially what you talked about, which is very much the, the, the classic marketing score side, what's the engagement with us as a brand. And then the other side is the, the intent data to say, well, actually, are they are they are they looking like they're active in the marketplace for a solution? Um, and then obviously, if they're if they're active, we're looking to to drive outward um, communications to them, depending also on how they've how they've been consuming our our interests. So you know, if we, they're also engaged with us, then that's great. Then that's a different tone. And if they're not, then we're trying to put that kind of competitor analysis and just trying to work out that sort of model. And then using using our product to help show the actual person to person engagement, so the SDRs pick it up uh, and then sort of start driving it through the process and make sure that we're engaging with those most prime. Um, you know, leads or accounts at the at the right time. Um, so, no, it's just interesting when you were talked about intent. I wasn't sure if if you would see that as part of, of as part of the the engagement with with your your material, whether you know as you were said, you know, events or or collateral, or whether you would whether you see a sort of place for that sort of third party intent data to just generally show activity in the marketplace. I do. I think that that third party intent is uh, is important, especially when you're talking about um, uh, target or like more account-based stuff, right? Because with target accounts, you're essentially saying that these accounts are qualified, period, right? We don't care if they're engaging with us. That's why we're targeting them. We think they're important enough that they are by default qualified. Um, and so in that realm, um, that intent data helps with that level, that account level qualification. Um, and then and then the the sort of like, Behavioral engagement helps you to prioritize, well, who should we reach out to um, within that account, right? I mean, there's probably people that you're targeting in an outbound capacity regardless, but you can't always necessarily get a hold of those people. So if you can prioritize based on the actual engagement with, uh, with you know, your company assets, you know, maybe that's like the chink in the armor that you can kind of skate through to, to get to those higher ups that you're trying to access. Brilliant. Thank you, Arch. Uh, really helpful. Um, Tom, you're going to come back. And wrap up. Yes, yes, there we go. I think the, the core thing for me was, it's actually something I didn't mention in the interview, but I thought it was quite interesting how you were saying um, in the previous role, you kind of came in and there, there wasn't a marketing ops, ops person, but you uh, said that actually maybe we should do, do the lead scoring this way. Um, and then you trans, uh, in the next role, you transitioned over to, to becoming uh, for the first time, I believe, like RevOps. So it's quite an interesting journey, I think, here um, that, that you went through to understand that maybe actually having the the revenue uh, operation managed by one person, even though the marketing ops team is not directly reporting to you now, um, I thought that was quite an interesting yep. insight. I should have brought it up in the interview, but um, that, that that's what I think is quite interesting, should be quite interesting for the audience. Um, also, the whole lead scoring thing, I think, was quite fundamental um, that, you, that you did improve there. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, Gabe, yeah. big question to finish. Who in the world of sales ops or RevOps would you most like to take for lunch? Oh, wow. It's a very good question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cheat. I'm going to cheat. I'm going to give you an answer. Um, so, my sort of um, three-time boss and mentor, um, who was the, the gentleman that recruited me to join him at... Um, PagerDuty, who I then 
uh, followed to both Lookout and Mesosphere, who is a great sales ops leader um, and, a, and a good friend who, because of COVID, I haven't seen in quite a while. I'd love to take him to lunch. His name is David Hong. He is the, um, I forget his exact title. I think it's VP of Global Field Operations at uh, GitLab. Um, and he is um, just a great uh, just a great leader, a great guy, um, super sharp. Um, so yeah, but would love to take would love to take Mr. Hong to lunch again because I haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> Shout out to Mr. Hong, Gabe. Yeah. I want to thank you for being so generous with your wisdom, and I want to thank you for coming on Self Off Demystified. Thank you for having me. It was uh, it was a pleasure. Love to do it again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sales of Demystified podcast. If you are listening on a podcast listening application, then please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you have any questions about the show, if you know a guest, or if you have any questions about sales operations, just hit me up at tomhunt at ebster.com. That's tomhunt at ebster.com. 